Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Thanks, Mark. Um, yeah, little Zoe is um, teething at the moment. So if you hear um, some shouting and some growling, that's her current party trick. So don't be too um, disconcerted. I have a daughter that's trying to become a dinosaur. So it's, you know, that's fun. So here we are, January 2022. Uh, last couple of years have been interesting um, and definitely controversial. Um, lots of issues have been debated, discussed, and there's plenty of things to be outraged um, about. So I thought I'd bring a very important issue uh, to your attention today. Cole started selling hot cross buns on Boxing Day this year. Depending on which side of the fence you sit on, um, it's a heated topic, which you know people have strong opinions on. Here are some of the headlines. Customers fume as uh, Hocker Buns hit supermarket shelves on Boxing Day. Coles divides the internet selling Hocker Buns on Boxing Day. A woman called Stacey Jenkins felt so strongly about this, she put together a petition to prevent this sacrilege on change.org. In particular, this year, one shopper was so passionate about the issue that they wrote a note and taped it to a package of hot cross buns for someone to do something about, the shopper, the shelf packer, the corporate, who knows. But in case you can't read it, this is what it says. The last time I checked, the celebration of the birth and death of Jesus was more than a month, was not separated by less than a month. She obviously missed the memo they were available on Boxing Day. But quite a few people feel that selling this bread item outside of this indefinite period surrounding Easter is diminishing the significance of the religious holiday. Now, with so many things happening in society, it can be difficult to know which issues are worth fighting for. So Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, needed to address this in a couple of situations. Uh, One was the issue of eating meat uh, that had been sacrificed to idols. And the other was whether Paul's authority as a church leader was somewhat diminished by the fact that he was paying his own way. So let's start reading 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. Um, I've got the passages up there, um, or you can follow along yourselves. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom all things live, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled." But food does not bring us nearer to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. 
So Paul is basically saying that idols are only objects made by people and therefore they don't hold any inherent power. Therefore, food sacrificed to an object is no different to food which hasn't been. But because some new Christians were still adjusting to the idea to that idols are meaningless, in their mind the food has been tainted by association. And Paul gives us this summary line at that point. He says, food does not bring us near to God. We're no worse if we do eat, and we're no better if we do. The food is just food. And he links this to his key point here in verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who has this knowledge eating in a temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So Paul is asking the Corinthians to consider others as well as themselves when they choose their actions. If what you are doing will cause harm to your brother or sister, then you may want to reconsider your choices. And he expresses this in verse 13. Therefore, it's in bold there. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Paul ultimately says, food is just food. But is food and your appetite more important than your fellow Christians? Whilst Paul agrees with the Corinthians that there's no defilement of food which has been sacrificed to idols and no reason why they can't eat it normally, Paul asks the Corinthians to limit this display of freedom in Christ for the sake of the more vulnerable amongst them. He first of all agrees with them in principle, yes, you can eat the meat. That's the rule. You can eat the meat. But he asks them to lay it aside for the sake of others. You also note that he doesn't say, no one can eat meat for the sake of the vulnerable. He says, meat's okay, just think about others before you do it. And we see this principle demonstrated by Jesus uh, repeatedly through the scriptures. But there's a very moving and concise summary that Paul gives in Philippians chapter 2. So he writes to a different church, to the church of Philippi. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love... If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any, t- any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross." 
Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all names and that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul says each of you should look not only to your own interests but also to the interests of others as indeed Christ did to the point of death on the cross. He put aside his majesty and his standing as part of the Godhead in order to be humbled for our salvation. And his personal teaching shows this servant's heart, this laying aside of rights, and it's integral to our attempt to follow Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 24 to 25, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. And Mark chapter 10, verses 42 to 45, Jesus calls them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But this raises the question, do we never fight for our rights? Do we never stand on what is rightfully ours? No, I I don't believe this is the case either. There are definitely times and causes for which it is good and right to stand up and be counted. Paul, in his missionary journeys, often appealed to his rights as a Roman citizen to help get himself and others out of the legal difficulties that he frequently found himself in. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the next chapter following the discussion about meat sacrificed to idols, Paul actually asserts his right as an apostle and preacher of the gospel to the financial and substantive support and assistance for his congregation, quite strongly in fact. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about God, oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says that for us, doesn't he? 
Yes, this is written for us, because when the ploughman ploughs and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? Because in the Corinthian church, they had actually been considering Paul as a second-rate apostle because he was financially supporting himself in his missionary work rather than seeking financial support from the church in Corinth. In the same way in our society, we sometimes think of volunteers as less professional than paid workers. But Paul strongly asserts his right to this support from the Corinthians. But he actually doesn't stop there. He says, but we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered and on the altar. And in the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. But I've not used the, any of these rights. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. I don't think anyone can say that Paul does not have a flair for the dramatic, personally. But Paul is demonstrating his own use of the instructions he actually gave them in Corinthians chapter 8. Sometimes we forgo our rights for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. He elaborates further. Though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone that I might win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free of God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. So we have encouragement to forego our rights, but we also have examples of Paul using his rights for his own purposes. So how do we discern in our own lives what we stand by and what we forego? I'd like to humbly suggest a frame of reference. So first of all, does this protect the vulnerable? Sometimes we might fight for a situation where others cannot fight for themselves. Proverbs 31 verses 8 to 9 says it this way. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. 
Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. So I think that we can see that for William Wilberforce to speak up for those subjected to the blight of slavery as being a time that fighting for rights was worth it. I think we can see that when Martin Luther King Jr. fighting for civil rights as being a time of fighting for the vulnerable. For the refugees here in Australia who have been stuck in indefinite detention for nearly a decade, these are vulnerable people who need someone else to fight for them. And as Adele shared last week, for those who are caught up in modern slavery, it is good and right to fight for these causes. God cares how we treat the most vulnerable in our society. And he says that how we treat them is actually a reflection of how we treat him. And the second aspect that we think about is whether this is for the good of others. As Christ himself so often demonstrated, we are called to put aside our rights for the good of others. And in that Philippians chapter 2 that we read previously, Paul says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And if we think about what Paul is literally saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he says basically, I would never eat meat again if it meant that one person would be saved. There are so many ways that we can demonstrate our love for others by a small sacrifice on our behalf. And the third and really the most important frame of reference for deciding whether to fight or not is the primary reason is that we do it for the sake of the gospel. When Paul decides whether he's going to accept financial support or not, it is for the benefit of the gospel, because he does both. When he decides whether to call on his rights as a Roman citizen or not, it's for the sake of the gospel, because he does both. In Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 40, that's the story where Paul and Silas are in the, um, in the city of Philippi, and they get arrested. Happens in a lot of the cities that really the Paul goes to. But he doesn't mention that he's a Roman citizen immediately. In fact, he spends the night in prison singing songs and praises and hymns. There's a mighty earthquake, and all the jail doors open up, and the jailer is terrified, thinking everyone's escaped. And then Paul converts him and his family, they're baptised and they return to jail um, to wait into the morning. And the town officials come, want to let Paul go. Now the key thing is, is that Paul spends the whole night in prison and then also spends time preaching to the jailer and the fellow inmates without mentioning that he's a Roman citizen because it suited his purpose and I believe the leading of the Holy Spirit. When the governors went to release him, they were like, all right, now get out of town and do it quietly. And he said, actually, I'm a Roman citizen. What you did was illegal. And therefore, he's allowed to stay in the city, um, strengthen the church of Philippi before he goes on his way. It suited his purpose to not mention it, to preach the gospel, and it suited his purpose to mention it, to preach the gospel. Another example in Acts chapter 24 to 25, it's a big passage, 
Paul's been arrested again, this time's in Jerusalem, um, and he's being held by the Roman ruler, Felix. And he's held by Felix for two years because Felix basically knows there's no legal case against him, but he doesn't want to upset the Jews. So he just kind of hangs on to him indefinitely. And so Paul spends two years regularly preaching the gospel with Felix. And this governor actually gets replaced. Felix decides, rather than do anything with this, I'm going to pass the buck. Let the next governor take care of it. So the next governor arrives. What's going on? Paul explains, he says, are you happy to go back to Jerusalem? Because that's what the Jews have asked, because they plan to assassinate him. And Paul says, nope, I appeal to Caesar. Send me to Rome. So at this point, um, Paul then preaches the gospel to our new, go our new governor. King Agrippa happens to be visiting, so he preaches it to the king and queen. And at that point, they kind of go, yeah, he probably could go free, but he's appealed to Caesar, so off he goes to Rome. And through Paul's writing, you can see there that he chose not to appeal to Caesar immediately, which he could have done at the beginning of his two years with Felix. He equally could have bade his time a little bit longer and not appealed to Rome. But he saw an opportunity to get free transport, I assume, to Rome to be able to preach the gospel there, which he had never been and always wanted to get to. We see here that in another passage, Paul is taking his time and deciding when to utilise those very handy rights as a Roman citizen to suit the benefit of the gospel. And so Paul, in fact, says in 1 Corinthians, I've become all things to all people by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And if we also think about the example of Jesus, he humbled himself to the point of death on the cross for the sake of our salvation, which is the gospel. In all things, we should have the good of the gospel for the sake of the gospel as our motivation and purpose. And when evaluating issues to fight for, or in the small scale, maybe even conversations where we feel like we should speak up or not, I think we need to very carefully evaluate our motivations. Often we can become upset and concerned about something. We might think that that's a violation of rights or a very important principle. But actually, deep down, the root concern is probably different to what we first thought. We might feel that there's some very important underlying principle to defend, but really there's something else happening in our heart. And these are likely to detract from our goal of sharing the gospel. And so one of those, and there's many of them, but here's some that I'd like to suggest. One is to be vindicated as right. If you can't read that, that's a Charlie Brown and Snoopy cartoon. Charlie Brown says, I hear you're writing a book on theology. I hope you have a good title. And Snoopy says, I have the perfect title. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? As humans, we love to be right. The thrill of validation, and particularly when it comes from demonstrating that someone else is wrong. Bam, bam, double thrill. Sometimes you might, you know, get a bit twitchy when you're hearing something that you know that's wrong and you really want to tell them because you know it's right. You know, those sort of situations. It'd be very hard to resist. 
But in order for us to be right, someone else has to be wrong. And people hate to be wrong. As much as we love to be right, people hate to be wrong. And I would bring up what Paul says in the chapter 9 of the 1 Corinthians passage. It says, though I am free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jew I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law to win those. To those not having the law I became like one of those to win those. To the weak I became the weak. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. So although Paul knew that the Jewish way of life had been surpassed by Christ, he still became like a Jew to win the Jews. I don't mean he adopted the Jewish religion again, but he did enough, he conceded enough, he laid aside his desire to correct everything about their religion, which he was knowledgeable to do, in order to fulfill his true purpose to win them for the gospel. In my limited experience, sharing the gospel with people is less of a one-time conversation. It's more of a walking alongside people on a journey. And therefore, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, I personally prefer to maintain a relationship with someone to be able to have further conversations about Jesus than to break down communication over my desire to correct a perceived untruth. Sometimes playing the long game is actually worth it. And here I'm not talking about watering down the core truths of the gospel at all. I'm not talking about compromising the really important stuff. But sometimes a lot of the outside, less important stuff somehow becomes our focus. As a teenager, I heard the turn of phrase, which a lot of us have heard. Um, ultimately, people only care about what you know once they know how much you care. It's very easy to dis dismiss people you don't care about. It's a lot harder to dismiss people who you do. So a second instance, which I think is sometimes an underlying issue, is when our pride is hurt or we feel insulted. It's a little picture of someone getting slapped with a glove. When Jesus instructs us to turn the other cheek when we are slapped, he's not condoning us putting ourselves in a place of abuse or being harmed. A slap to the face, similar to now, is a way of expressing insult. It's demeaning. It doesn't do lasting damage normally. So Jesus says that when we are insulted, our response is not to take them to court, which may be our right, uh, to do the same to them, which according to Old Testament eye for an eye law would be reasonable, but rather to forgive the insult. I'd like to humbly suggest that I don't think the death of Christ is disrespected when fruity bread rolls are sold outside of the Easter holiday. Another reason can be inconvenience. Sometimes we interpret inconvenience as an encroachment of our rights. 
Paul says he will stop eating meat altogether if it will prevent his brother from falling. I mean, but also note his brother wasn't mildly offended by this. Um, He didn't, you know, think it would look better to others if they didn't, you know. It was rather what was at stake that the brother would be lost. So I think sometimes we need to keep both sides in perspective, you know. It's good not to be overly easily offended, but equally what Paul is saying, if a small action means a lot to someone else, it's often worth inconveniencing ourselves for the good of that other person. And I think the fourth situation which can make us feel uncomfortable is perhaps when the status quo changes. So when society and the status quo changes, it can sometimes feel uncomfortable. And sometimes losing a position of honour can feel like a bit of a personal attack. So in the West and in Australia in particular, uh, Christianity has had a position as the societal default in a lot of ways. And to some extent, maintaining um, a Christian social underpinning can be seen as acting as the salt and light in our society, um, as being the ultimate good for individuals in a society to be framed by God's truth. Um, However, some Christians' response to the changes in society and the status quo, frankly, can appear petulant rather than loving. Um, Using the hot crust buns as an example. I'm sure the individual that wrote that note was wanting the significance of both Christmas and Easter not to be diminished and to be overtaken by capitalism. However, by connecting the significance of the events with food eaten as celebration of them, it actually reduces the impact of the message. Easter's more than hot cross buns, so incredibly more. And if we're reduced to arguing about whether you can eat hot cross buns and the capitalism of that, we're diluting the message of what we're actually trying to talk about. I mean, we can use something like hot cross buns as a form of a bridge to discussing our faith. What's the cross on the bun about? Well, it's about the death of Jesus, etc., etc. But the hot cross buns themselves are meaningless. You know, the really important issue is sharing our faith with others. Not the fruity bedrolls, although they are delicious. And I bought some this week. Already we're seeing this dilution of the Christian underpinning in Australian society. Like quite a few people don't really know what Easter is celebrating. However, despite these societal changes we're experiencing here in Australia, we're not living in the age of persecution that the New Testament talks about. Jesus says to expect persecution as Christians and that we shouldn't expect better treatment than our master. Next week, we have Jesse Caulfield coming back uh, to share about, I'm sure, the persecuted church. Um, and sometimes it's good to get that perspective shift. You know, this is, this is what true persecution looked like. We're just a bit awkward and uncomfortable over here in Australia. But understanding our motivation and what aspect of the situation upsets us, it can help us to ascertain whether a topic or issue is worth fighting for. But those times when we assert our rights 
or have situations where we're evaluating whether to have a difficult conversation or not, you should always be tempered by love. Because James chapter 1 verse 19 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. And in verse 26, he becomes even more specific. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So at any time when we're confronted with these difficult situations, our first response should be love. Whether that be loving restraint on our behalf or loving correction, love should be the crucial ingredient with the good of the gospel being our ultimate goal. And a radical model of servant leadership and love is displayed in the account of the washing of the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. So none of the disciples wanted to do this dirty job. Grown men walking in the dirt and dust in a hot climate in sandals, disgusting, sweaty, gross feet. So, but it wasn't just that it's a dirty job, it's also the job that was left for the servants to do because it was demeaning. So Jesus himself, the guest of honour, does the crazy act and washes the feet of his disciples. I do find it interesting that the only objection we have in this account is Peter saying that Jesus shouldn't wash his feet. No one offered to take Jesus' place. The best they had to offer was, I don't need my feet washed. But Jesus explains after having demonstrated his point, you call me teacher and you call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, so also should you wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And for me, one of the really interesting parts reading it this time round was actually the preamble in verses 3 to 5 leading into this story. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So Jesus starts from a place of knowing his position and authority and flowing from that security, he chooses to humble himself to bless and serve his disciples. He doesn't do this because it's appropriate to do. Like the right thing in that situation is not for the host to get up and wash the feet. Like, I don't think Jesus is saying, from now on, this is now no longer the job of the servants. I'm pretty sure, you know, the servants kept doing this job. But what he was saying was, is that from that place of knowing who he was, he chose to humble himself to bless and serve his disciples. He does it in the full knowledge that he is teacher and Lord and that he has all the power under God, but chooses to humble himself to teach and serve his disciples for the good of others. 
for the sake of the gospel. So for us, as we seek to follow in the Great Commission to preach the gospel to all nations, to share in the love and relationship with Christ that we have, we need to embody the love of Christ as we seek to navigate these modern situations we find ourselves in. As we apply the gospel and the teachings to our lives and society, we need to prioritise the good of others for the sake of the gospel. And as Paul says, I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're the type of leader and teacher, Lord, who exemplifies what you talk about, Lord. You demonstrate to us first, and you also explain it, Lord. Lord, you've shown us that sometimes, Lord, we need to be flexible in how we approach life, that we need to treat people as people and food as food. Lord, we just pray that as we go into our week, Lord, you might be revealing to us, Lord, the ways that we can put others first, Lord, the way that we can prioritise your gospel. And, Lord, that that would empower us to be bold in both sharing our faith, Lord, and, Lord, loving others. We pray that, Lord, as we try and walk in your footsteps, Lord, loving others, putting them ahead of ourselves, Lord, that this might touch the heart of others and bless you as well, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.